You know, the song that um, Bryson and Debbie did a few minutes ago was, uh, the words were written back in 1675. When do you imagine the tune was written? Anybody have an idea? Very recently, Bryson did it. Pretty good, huh? So if you have any other songs and you're interested in a very a different tune, he's your guy. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for giving us the privilege of looking at your word together. We ask you to bless it to us, help us. We pray, conform us to the image of Christ. We ask these mercies in Jesus' name, amen. If you don't have a destination, you're on the road to nowhere. Seems obvious, right? Well, so why don't more of us have a clear vision of our future? Why do we struggle? Uh, Seneca, you may have heard of him. He lived back between 4 and 69, I think, A.D. Some people even suggest that he may have known St. Paul. Well, he penned a work called on the tranquility of the mind. And in it, he makes this suggestion. Let all your efforts be directed to something. Let those efforts keep that end in mind. And his advice is something that we've heard more currently. Stephen Covey, in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, says, begin with the end. Well, as followers of Jesus, don't we need to get where the Lord is leading us? And don't we want to hear Christ say to us, well done, good and faithful servant? We're looking at more of what the Bible has to say about life in a Christian family, about relationships, specifically about relationships between children and their parents, and slaves and their masters. And we might ask the question, what do those pairs of relationship have in common? Why would Paul link them together? Well, it's what we've heard from both Seneca and Covey. These topics are together because they are very much focused on the end game, on about your destination. And we're looking at the verses that John just read for us, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 9. So if you can look at that in your Bible, please. Now, the question is, how should we approach it? Uh, and I want to be pretty simple in our approach. We're going to look at what he, Paul has to say to children and parents. Then we're going to look at what he has to say to slaves and their masters. And then we'll reflect a little bit on what that means for us in terms of keeping the end in mind. Well, first, though, where does this section fit in the flow of Ephesians? Well, it comes right out of chapter 5, verse 18. You know what it says? Uh, don't be drunk with wine in which there is excess or debauchery, but be filled and keep on being filled by the Holy Spirit, or be filled and keep on living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. How Children and parents 
and masters and slaves then relate to one another is important for the cosmic unity which Christ is affecting. Now, that Paul would name these uh, various people together is, I think, uh, at least informative. Why are they together? Why would they be in some setting where all these different people would hear, at least hear, this letter read? Well, because they were all part of a church. That's the reason. And that was a cross-cultural counter cultural idea. What do you mean? You would have slaves and their masters worshiping together? And how about all these little kids running around? And then one other thing, that these and the wives that we've just looked at from last week, that these people are being addressed implies that there's a certain freedom of decision making that the Lord is placing before them. Let me say it this way. Christian family life is not about a forced march under the heavy hand of a spiritual tyrant. That is not the way life in the church operates. That's not the way life in a family operates. It's not about being demanding toward others. It's about learning to submit to one another in such a way that we grow together in our oneness with the Lord and with each other. Well, so what about children and parents? Please look at verses 1 to 4. Now, you know the old saying. When I didn't have any children, I had six theories about how to raise them. Now I have six kids. No theories. <laughs> well, thankfully, the Lord has not left struggling children <clears throat> and struggling parents in that place. He has help for us, and it's right here. So look at the setup, first of all, verses 1 and 4. And what I'd like you to do is compare their beginnings, uh, the beginning and end of each of those verses. Uh, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath or anger, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Do you see what's at the beginning? The party addressed, do you see what's at the end? Reference to the Lord. Those terms kind of act like bookends. And they're bookends to this first section. And what's in the middle of the first section? A quote from the Old Testament. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So what's Paul have in mind when he talks about children? It has a wide range of meaning in the New Testament. The term children can be used for those that at least are old enough to know the difference between good and evil. And it could also be used for children who abuse their parents, and a whole lot of other things in between. They're old enough to work in the field. In this case, suffice it to say, Paul has in mind children who understand enough to obey. They're at least that old. Well, what's obedience? Again, 
It means to listen to, to submit to one, to submit, to surrender, to yield, to do what somebody else says to do. When our kids were little, we would have, um, well, obedience seminars. And one of them, I would lead one of them, and it would go like this. Now, what does it mean to obey? And then there would be these vacant looks, or we're counting the flies on the ceiling. Um, and then I would help the process along by saying, this is what it means to obey. When I speak, I want you to look in my face, right at my eyes. And when I speak to you, I want you to do what you've been asked. And I want you to do it the first time you've been asked. And I want you to do it with a glad heart. And our kids tease me about those seminars to this very day. So let me ask, where did I get those ideas that those uh, uh, look in my eyes and do what I say the first time, uh, do it gladly? Where did I get those ideas? They flowed out of my understanding of what the Lord wants from me in my relationship to him. He wants my ear tuned to his voice as it comes to expression in his word. He wants my will to be submissive to him ahead of time. He wants my energy to be directed toward doing what he says. And he wants my heart to be inclined toward giving him pleasure and finding my pleasure in giving him pleasure. When I say these things to you, it seems like sort of as obvious as rolling off a log. And I think it's really important, and I want to touch on why I think it isn't always obvious to us, but just to illustrate the importance of this concept of obedience. You're walking down the street with your toddler, and you see perhaps a, a, a Doberman on the loose charging toward you, or a, car, or a car careening down the street. Now, you don't have time to fiddle around. You see the danger, your child doesn't. This is not a, chance, a time to have a discussion as to what's reasonable to do. You want prompt obedience. You want that child to have his or her, her ear tuned to your voice. Now, if you're like me, this is a place where parents, uh, I, I think in large measure, are just out to lunch. Don't take it personally, but I'm saying it. I think that largely parents are out to lunch on this point. First of all, they don't have an end game in mind. Oh yeah, they want their kids to grow up to be good kids and be, you know, successful. But in terms of what this actually looks like, eh, uh, they aren't really thinking that when the Bible says all have sinned, that includes their little children. They're prone to go their own way. They somehow don't think that there's a need for patient training. Rather, I've seen lots of parents who think all you have to do is say to a kid, 
do what I said, and then if he doesn't do it, you just raise the volume. And they miss the idea that teaching a child to listen to your voice is critical for his well-being. So the Bible says that children obeying their parents is virtually the same as children obeying the Lord. Why? Because the Lord's put them, put parents in a position of authority over them. And a child's relationship is so important that it is compared to the relationship between God's people and God himself. Disobedience, children's disobedience is a mark of depravity. And the Bible tells us that it is also a sign of the chaotic ending to the last days in which we are now living. Children obeying their parents is part of spiritual formation. And it is a mark of walking in the spirit. So what do we do then with this middle section between the boundaries, between the bookends of verse 1 and 4, where there's this reference to a promised reward? This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Well, it's the first commandment with a promise in this sense. The other commandments that precede the fifth one are, uh, do have words of warning, but they're more threats. This is where we first get to a promise with the Lord. And then that raises a question. Does that mean that obedience to your parents always results in long life? Uh, Sarah Jane died at age seven and a half from leukemia and just broke her parents' heart. Her father, on the other hand, lived till he was 93. One commentator suggests this, and I think it's helpful. There are many causes or contributing factors to long life. For example, uh, eat your spinach. Uh, Look at your genes, your inherited genes. Avoid addictions. Um, exercise. Drive carefully. If you're sick, treat that. But I think there's another one that we can include here. Obey your parents. All other causes and conditions being the same, God says that too will increase the lifespan that he has marked out for you. Can we turn to parents now? Look at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction, or the discipline and the nurture of the Lord. And it's interesting that this word that he uses, the discipline and the uh, instruction, or discipline and admin, uh, the discipline uh, and the instruction of the Lord, it, that's used also in at the end of chapter 5, where husbands are called to nourish their wives. Same word. Fathers are to help their children. Husbands are to nourish their wives. Same thing. Well, first of all, just a translation note. If you look at your Bible, it will probably uh, read like this. 
Um, fathers, the first word of, of that verse is fathers, right? Not the right translation. It's not a big deal in one sense. But uh, the Greek has the word and. And so what we read is, children obey your parents and parents don't provoke your children to anger. In other words, there are respective responsibilities. Raising children is not just them bringing themselves up. Parents have a role in it, and parents don't provoke your children to anger. There's a mutuality in the home that we referenced earlier. So what makes a kid angry? It's an important question, isn't it? And not all kids are the same. Some get angry over one thing, some get angry over another, and so if the instruction is don't provoke your children to anger, it seems like Paul is suggesting study your children. You want them to follow the Lord? You ought to be paying attention to them, not just barking orders at them. So here are some anger buttons that I've been able to identify. Excessively severe discipline. You know, killing a fly with a bazooka. Unreasonably harsh demands. Abuse of authority, parents' authority. Being unfair, nagging, condemning, subjecting a child to humiliation. any form of gross insensitivity to a child's need. You say, would that happen in a family? Would any of those things? Yes. And let's just keep in mind one statistic. 1912, there were over 1,500 child fatalities due to abuse recorded in the US. And in 80% of the cases, parents were the abusers. You do the math, 80% of 1,500. What's the end game for Christian parents? Well, look at the end of verse 4. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Fathers are agents. They're, you might say, surrogates for God the Father. Christian education is not only then Bring your kids to Covenant Kids on Wednesday night. Make sure they're in Sunday school. They're out at children's. It, it, it's not only that. It's also, and I might say primarily, what happens at home. That's where kids spend most of their time with adults, right? So children and fathers, children and fathers' parents get to contribute to unity at home. And that strengthens the pillars of society. And it ultimately moves in the direction of bringing in the end of history where all things will be united under Christ. Well, we've talked about children and parents. So let's look at slaves and masters now. And this will be brief, more brief than what I just said about children. Well, what's the good word here on slaves and masters? It's very similar to what we noted about children and parents. Paul begins with those in the subordinate position. Like the whole church, they, that is slaves, 
are to walk, uh, uh, slaves as they walk to work are to walk in the spirit. And right out of the shoot in chapter one, Paul tells us that he is where he is in his life experience, not by chance. Look at uh, chapter one, verse one. He's not there by chance. He's not there by his own stellar efforts, but he is where he is by the will of God. And that holy plan is one where believers are predestined in eternity past, chapter 1, verse 5, God, where God is orchestrating the consummation of all things in Christ, chapter 1, verses 9 and 11, and one in which believers come to understand and execute the will of God, chapter 5, verse 17. And even slaves then get in on the action that is to say, from one end of the cosmos to the other, from the beginning of time to the end, in the life of the apostle and the life of the slave, each and both, God is working his plan. And so, how slaves are to live is spelled out now in four ways. Please notice. With fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as a Christian, not as being interested in eye service, what people see, not as being interested in whether or not I'm making a good impression, but rather as doing the will of God from the heart, serving with zeal to the Lord. Yeah, they're slaves. Yeah, their actions are often governed by other people who are telling them what to do. And yet what Paul is communicating here is that they are still in full control of what's going on on the inside. And what about masters slash employers? They're not to treat their slaves, they are to treat their slaves with sincerity, remembering that they too have a master in heaven who rewards and punishes without partiality. So please notice now the connection between verses 7, 8, and 9. Slaves are to give service with goodwill as to the Lord and their masters. Look at it. Don't take my word for it. Look at it. It says masters are to do the same. You see it? Now, we've looked at children and parents mostly. We've touched on slaves and masters so what about keeping this idea of keeping the end in mind? The question that's before us this morning is what is your end game? What are you living for? When it's all said and done, what do you want to be able to look back and say, yeah, yeah, I, I got to the important things. And the real issue is who do you, do you intend to serve today? Kids? Here's the Lord's word for you. Obey your parents. What does that mean? It means looking them in the eye. Well, here's the Peter's version. It means looking them in the eye when they speak to you. It means listening to their voice. It means doing what they ask, and it means doing it gladly. Parents, study your children 
so you can avoid making them angry and bring them up in the Lord. Your aim is to nurture them so that they love the Lord, love his church, love his people, and they do that because, in part, because of the way you choose to relate to them. Slaves, employees, what's God's word to you? Obey your master. Not to impress other people, not just when you think somebody's watching you, but out of reverence for Christ. And master's employees, don't be a bully. Stop trying to use your position to get your way. Don't try to manipulate those reporting to you. It is most unbecoming. In fact, verses 8 and 9, be like a servant to those that are serving you. Remember, Christ is both your master and theirs, and he doesn't play favorites. Now, can anybody live up to these standards? Nope. No way. And that's exactly the reason we need a savior, isn't it? And we have the Holy Spirit living in us. And you can trust Jesus. He will enable you to be all he's designed you to be. He'll help you. He'll help you be a better kid. He'll help you be a better parent. He'll help you be a better employee. He'll help you be a better employer. A woman once married a widower who had some kids and she wondered how to relate to those children that she had adopted and wondered about whether or not it would be presumptuous of her uh, to imagine that they would want to relate to her as a mother figure. And she really couldn't get an answer to, a straight answer to that. When the Lord had first saved her, she thought, you know, I want to learn to share my faith. And so she uh, went around and asked people to support her financially, and they did. And then she went off to work with the campus ministry so that she could learn to better communicate Christ's grace to people that needed it. After that, she went on to seminary, and after that, she went on to this marriage. Well, pondering her newly married situation, it suddenly dawned on her. I have had years of training. I've worked with crew, what used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ. I've worked with crew. They've taught me to be a disciple maker. I've gone to seminary. They've given me insight into God's word. What about if I choose to relate to the, these children as my little disciples? I'm going to put, the, put on the side the question of whether or not they're going to treat me as a mother. I just want to know, am I discipling them? And that's what she did. You see, family life is very important. So how are things going in your relationship? That seems to be one of the driving questions of this chapter. And along with that, what are you aiming at? What are you trying to do? What is your destination? To what extent are you focused on serving Jesus as a faithful Savior? As a child, 
parent, employee, employer. What's in your future? What's your destination? Lord, thank you for your word. We ask you to bless it to us. We thank you for uh, giving us this time to look at it. So by your Holy Spirit, take what we've heard, shape us, enable us to give ourselves more fully to being servants of the living and true God who died on the cross to pay for all our sins and has empowered us to walk with you step by step. We ask these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen.